Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Katie, and welcome to 360 View. This is where we explore a broad range of ideas on all things affecting your body, your wellness, and your mind. So today we're super excited to have interviewed Chris Hughes. Chris is a practicing dietitian who is making waves after entering the field later in life. He spent the last 12 years as a dietitian specializing in chronic disease and weight loss. Chris traveled to the United States to study the science of obesity and this founded his clinic. So he opened his practice CQ Nutrition in 2014 and has grown to 18 staff and four clinics currently. Chris has a massive passion for helping people achieve their potential with a solid educational basis. He has a way of explaining the science of weight loss that just makes sense. We love chatting to him and we know you'll love it too. Enjoy the show. All right, and welcome back to 360 Viewers. Today, we are super excited. We have Chris Hughes, who is one of our dietitians who we have had a little bit of experience working with in the past, but today we are going to have the opportunity to pick his brain on a few things to do with weight loss, muscle mass, longevity, building sustainable habits, and giving you some actionable tasks to work through. How are you, Chris? I'm good, Katie. How are you? And Ben, how are you, mate? Yeah, good. So Chris, can you go into a little bit of your background about experience and how much experience you've had in the field and just a bit of how you got into the field? Uh, Yeah, so I got into the field a little bit late, Katie. I um, uh, was an electrician for the first part of my working life and then um, went to uni in my sort of mid-20s and thought um, food and what it does to the body was interesting. So um, yeah, pursued dietetics and um, yeah, I've been working now for about 11 or 12 years as a dietitian. Um, I mostly have worked chronic disease. So, um, you know, most of my clients have been people with diabetes or heart disease, um, which most of that then falls under weight loss. And so I, um, I guess if, if, you know, there was any specialty that I, I work with, it was um, trying to help people lose weight. Um, and yeah, so with that, I, I went over to the States a number of years ago and done some extra training over there around obesity interventions and just the science of obesity. And, um, yeah, I, I actually love it. I, I love the field. It's a challenging field and, um, it can be really rewarding when you can, uh, help people get the results that they need. Yeah, absolutely. So then when you got into, obviously you did your degree at uni, moving on from there, did you work in the public health sector? Were you working under private practice or under your own practice? Uh, Initially with Queensland Health, I was, yeah, uh, out in Roma. I worked out there for a number of years, um, but then I went into private practice and I've been in private practice ever since we set up our business, moved moved the family back to Yipoon in 2014 and uh, set up our private practice seeking nutrition. And yeah, we're sort of growing now. So we're about 18 staff. Uh, we've got offices in Mackay and um, Gladstone, Rocky, Yapoon, and then we uh, go out to Emerald there as well. So yeah, that's, that's our story. That's pretty massive. That, that's huge growth right there. Yeah, probably a little bit too huge at times, Katie. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, how it sort of happened, to be honest, is that I, I had to work my butt off to feed a family. And so I had to make sure my days were full. So I actually had to do a clinic in Gladstone or Emerald because I couldn't get a full week's clinic in Rocky or Yapoon when I first set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, because I built those locations up, I then had to you know, make a decision about putting someone else in those locations. So it was never actually our intention to you know, have offices all over the place. It was more just a necessity from what we built from the start. Yeah, which is excellent because now you have that widespread help. Yeah, yeah, it's really good now. It's, um, yeah, it was certainly hard early on doing, you know, long trips in the car and not seeing the kids as much. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it has worked out for the best now, for sure. Yeah, that's excellent. So then as seeking nutrition, obviously with building that many practices, you had to have across the board, your beliefs and your philosophies around weight loss and especially um, just yourself as a dietitian. What are some of your beliefs surrounding the whole weight loss arena and how it is at the moment um yeah look i my my belief katie is um that there is no one size that fits all every single person that steps into our clinic is a different challenge and you've got to sort of first understand that person to work to understand what's going to work for them um now you know the underlying philosophy of weight loss 
you know, proven in the science, regardless of what you might hear online sometimes, is that, you know, it's, you, you need a calorie or kilojoule deficit to lose weight. Um, you know, you can do that by reducing the carbs in your diet or reducing the fat or going paleo or whatever it might be, but ultimately you've got to create a calorie deficit. Um, now, we've, as a dietitian, it's our job to try and work out the best way to approach that for someone. And, and quite often people come to us with their own idea of what they want to do and we just need to sort of guide them and help shape the way that they do that so that it's sustainable and, and done in a healthy way that actually gets results for them at the same time. I'm also a really big advocate on educating people themselves. Um, I, I, you know, take, can take a little bit longer to educate someone so that they can understand what they really need to do long term. But, um, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of just giving a meal plan to someone without the education behind it because it's, you know, it's not teaching them anything. So they're ultimately going to lose weight for the time that they're eating that. But, you know, then they're back to square one. Yeah. And is that where the yo-yo cycle comes into play? Yeah, well, I mean, the body naturally will yo-yo. So, um, you know, this is the the really challenging thing in our field is that our bodies are actually not designed to lose weight. They're designed to store it. Like when you think of how long we've been on the planet, um, probably, you know, we've only ever actively tried to lose weight as a human race for probably the last 50 to 100 years. Everything before that, it was, you know, we needed to store it. It actually served us quite well to hold on to body fat. And now all of a sudden we're trying to reverse that. Um, you know, millions of years of evolution. And so our body is actually wired to store it. So when, when we lose weight, there's a number of mechanisms that the body puts in place to try and put that weight back on. And that's what we as, as health professionals are up against is, um, you know, the body's own physiology, which makes it quite difficult. That does make it difficult. And I suppose, especially when um, people are looking for that quick fix and they're looking for something yeah, that's that right. quickly. And, and yeah, I can understand that too. You know, I, I, I'm not against the quick fix per se because it can be motivating for people. So I don't mind people getting weight off rapidly, um, providing we hold on to muscle. There's, there's, you know, good and bad ways of doing that. Um, but at the same time, they've got to understand that mechanism and educate themselves along the way. Otherwise, that quick fix is going to turn into a yo-yo and then it's just jumping from one quick fix to the next. So... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge and it's one that, um, you know, the, the, the science of obesity fascinates me the more I've learned about this and it's something that I do try and explain to clients um, for better or worse. Sometimes it's probably a little bit of confusing information, but I want them to understand that, you know, this isn't just your lack of willpower um, that, that's resulted in you not um, being able to sustain the weight loss. This is your body working against you. So without actually putting in the environmental controls, you know, so what I mean by that is making sure that the home and the workplace aren't tempting for you all the time with, you know, really calorie-dense snacks, um, then you're really going to be up against it if you don't control that at the same time. Yeah, it's the environment's here most of the time. Yeah. So have you seen throughout your years of doing your practice as well there, Chris, is, is that potentially like age brackets or age groups have moved? So you've either seen more people coming in younger with these issues or people actually getting a bit further along in their life and now all of a sudden deciding that they need to get on that bandwagon or, or try and see that they need to lose weight or they feel it's now such a social thing that they need to lose that? Yeah, uh, I think we are becoming more health conscious, Ben. Um, so we're certainly seeing a push towards it. I think human nature, you know, no one likes to um, be carrying more weight. They, they would all like to feel good in their own body. Um, we're certainly seeing younger kids coming in with chronic conditions, high cholesterol and diabetes, which is the real tragedy um, because, you know, they're, they're coming in with these conditions before they've really been in control of their own diet. So it, it's been food that's kind of been fed to them, you know, so it's not even their own um, doing, if you like. Um, so that's a real tragedy. And, and you know, I, I, to be honest, I don't even blame their parents necessarily in that situation because, Quite often, that's what they were fed, you know, that's all they know how to feed their kids. So we're, we're seeing a real generational problem there. Um, but I, I think we are seeing a, a push. I think, um, you know, organisations are getting better at it. Um, our government mm, aren't too bad at it. Um, certain governments are better than others at really, you know, pushing the health message. Um, but I think there's a lot more that can be done, particularly at the government level. I think there's more legislation and, and taxation that should probably happen to try and make uh, eating healthier easier for sure. So where do you think the educational component falls down? Because from everything you're just saying, it sounds like it's really at the root of the issue is an educational 
like a lack of education. So where does that fall down? Like where is the miscommunication that people aren't being taught how to eat? And when did we need to be taught how how to eat and how to fuel your body properly? Because it seems like it should be something that's fairly intuitive. Yeah, you're right, Katie. It's, it's a challenging one because it's, um, you know, like you think of our grandparents' era, most of which grew their own vegetables. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't have... The, the range of food available to them right now. So right now, I think busy, families are a hell of a lot busier. Um, you know, you've got two working parents, so that, that time to prepare meals has been sacrificed. And as a result, there's now all these ready-made meals that you can get at the supermarket quite easily. Um, and this is where a lot of the nutrition is lost. So um, our grandparents and their parents didn't really have a choice. They, they had to cook from scratch. And so they, the, the food that they were eating was a hell of a lot more nutritious. And they then had to learn how to cook that food. And so now it's very simple for us just to throw things in the microwave or, um, you know, whatever it might be. And, and again, like I said, busies are, families are really busy and, and you can sort of understand that balance. So mm. it's it starts on how we we role model to our kids, I think, you know, like on, on how we eat. And, you know, even me as a dietitian, um, we're busy and, and sometimes we do get easy meals, you know, like it's it's not that we're cooking from scratch and eating this perfect diet all the time because you are trying to balance a business and a family at the same time and it's hard and, and that's the thing that has changed the most. Um, the other thing is that convenience food is so easy for us to access now. You know, like uh, when I went to school, there wasn't fast food outlets outside the schools, whereas you have a look at the... Um, it seems to be a strategy of a lot of these big fast food outlets. They're, they're very close to schools. Um, and so I see it in Yapoon all the time, all these kids walking to school with milkshakes and, you know, uh, slushies and all sorts of things, um, which I think is a huge tragedy. And, you know, it's easy then for the, the family, they're picking the kids up from school just to pull in there all the time. And so that, that's being role modelled and it's just a habit that's now starting to become ingrained into the generations moving forward. So um, that that is a problem. And then, you know, we... When our grandparents went to school, they never had nutrition education. There was a bit of home ec, of course, um, but you know, is do we need to have it in the curriculum? I think it's a good idea, but I also understand that the curriculum is pretty packed as it is. So, where do you fit it? And so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, not an easy one to answer. Yeah, and I think like you're saying there, Chris, as you see a lot more, is people have these flash, lavish kitchens mm. that all look wonderful to cook in, and they're amazing. They even have butlers' pantries and all this other stuff that's in there. But no one actually, if you ask them to go and cook in them, they probably even wouldn't know how to turn it on. In most cases, <laughs> the biggest thing is, is people are. And then like you were saying is it's got to fit to the right person because no one's a one, one, uh, you know, one item fits all. It's, it's something that doesn't suit you. It's not going to work as to trying to go through and tell them to be keep continually cooking for themselves. Yes, we need to try and set something up for you to cook on the weekend or set yourself up for success for the week. That's fine. But knowing that you're not going to be able to get home at 7.30 from picking Johnny up from soccer practice and then cook dinner for four other people at the same time. It's being, you know, knowing that that's happening, knowing that you've got to do it, knowing how to educate and knowing that people can choose the right choice is particularly out of something they have in the supermarket. Like I say, quick meals. That's how a lot of companies are targeting stuff now. Everyone's targeted towards quick meals. Uh, is it the most healthiest thing? No, but people are buying it. And people mm. and they and companies will move with the times to what people are purchasing. That's right. It's consumer demand, isn't it? You know, yeah. so it's um, that's what the consumer wants, uh, and and the vast majority still want it. You know, I think the people that want to be healthy are probably still the smaller percentage of people. So the market is bigger to cater to the to the um, convenience side of things, um, and yeah, it's it's a problem, mate. I. I I, I think, um, like what you're saying with the big kitchens and, um, you know, preparing meals, I, I know food prepping for me is the one thing if I could get anyone to do a bit of prep. Mm. Um, you know, I know it's also a bit of a burden and it's not an easy thing to do because, you know, your weekends are precious and it's probably the only chance you could do it on a weekend. But the effect that that can have on, on your health and your family is huge, but it's, it's something that, um, you know, is probably not adopted as, as often as what I, I, I think would be beneficial for people. Because then that helps that people escape those cravings when they do come up midweek when they're hungry. And how do you attack that? Because I know we've had a lot of people ask us as well um, and bring up that they're, they're starving. Or other things, yeah. They're craving things and they find that when they're hungry, like they need that and they're really struggling to get over that. How, how do you work that? 
Yeah, look, the, the thing is, um, so again, our brain is wired to favour calories. So we've, we've got um, in a part of the brain, so the hypothalamus is where our appetite control centre is, and there's a part of that that has like a decision um, filter, if you like, and that filter is is geared towards calorie-rich food. It's actually geared towards intensity of flavour, which is why you artificially sweetened or naturally sweetened things that are low calorie can trick the brain because they the brain's not measuring calories, it's measuring the intensity of flavour. And so if anything smells rich or tastes rich or whatever, the brain will always go towards making a decision to consume that. So if during the week um, the option is to cook a meal from scratch or have something that's convenient and can be made real quickly that's really calorie rich, your brain is working against you to really go for that. So the craving really, um, you know, like is quite strong. You know, people, especially now if they haven't eaten properly all day, um, you know, like if they haven't had a good breakfast or a good lunch and then come that time of afternoon, if they're um, starving, then they've really set themselves up for failure. I do it. If, I have, if I've been busy and I've missed a meal or whatever it might be, um, and I get that hungry, I don't make a good decision about food. I, I, I want to eat, you know, you just eat whatever you can because you're hungry. And so that that's really something that um, you need to plan for. It's not something that you can get to that moment and think, oh, I'm starving, or I just need to beat this. You really need to tackle it before that problem occurs. And that means doing some meal prepping, means planning your meals out, making sure you're eating a good breakfast and a good lunch. Um, good volume is something that I talk about all the time. Um, you know, a lot of people... Like if they're talking about kilojoules or calories, they might just focus on those numbers, but they don't actually factor in the amount of food providing those numbers. So, so the example I often talk about is a biscuit and an apple, uh, both very similar in kilojoules, but um, an apple's about 150 to 200 grams in weight that goes into someone's stomach, which is really important because the, the brain actually registers how much food's going into the stomach. So that's a big part of controlling hunger. Um, whereas a biscuit's about 20 grams. You know, so so 20 grams, you eat a biscuit, you might be staying, you might think you're staying under your kilojoule um, target for the day or whatever it might be, but you'll be starving because you're just not putting much weight into your stomach. And so if that's the kind of meal pattern that you're going for, then you will, you'll get to that afternoon and you'll just be famished. You'll be looking for whatever you can. So you're really setting, you're really setting, like if you bring those two things together, your brain is wired to crave the most rich energy energy dense food and yet we want the heaviest for the stomach so is that when people start to over consume because it's there but they want the weight in the stomach to feel full but then energy like the energy dense food is the thing that our brain is wired to want yeah so so there's a number of mechanisms that will uh, work to make us feel satiated so make us feel full Okay, so one of them is is the there's these things called mechanoreceptors. So they're like a stretch receptor in the stomach. So that is like measuring the volume of food coming into the stomach. And then there's protein and fiber. They send off some neurotransmitters to the brain that, that register, hey, you know, we've started eating. And so the thing is, if you are eating a diet that's quite calorie dense, like a biscuit, okay, so there's not a lot of protein, not a lot of fiber, then you're relying on the weight to really get that that signal to the brain to say, hey, I'm you know I'm filling up or I'm full, but the problem is you've got to eat nearly a whole packet of biscuits before that weight is equivalent to what the apple could provide you. Mm. So now we're talking you know four thousand kilojoules in biscuits compared to four hundred kilojoules in apple, and that's mm. where you're setting yourself up. So yeah, that's that's the problem where um, and and look, the reality is if if you're hungry and you've got a biscuit or an apple there, you'll go for the biscuit. You know, the part of the brain, there's, there's some really interesting study um, that a guy called Dr. Stefan Gawaine, um has been a part of where they've done functional um, MRI imaging in the appetite control centre. And they show them pictures of like broccoli or um, flowers or chocolate slice. And the brain just lights up. It lights <laughs> up in response to that calorie-rich food. Wow. And so... You know, you, you can try and make the right decision, but uh, I, I advise my clients, don't ever rely on making the right choice. Don't give yourself the choice, you oh. know, because your brain's not wired to make the right choice. It's, it's wired to make the wrong choice. And I find that really hits me sometimes if I go grocery shopping when I'm hungry. I'll usually mm -hmm. buy stuff then when I get home and I'm unpacking things. I'm like, and you've eaten or something else has gone in between. I'm like, why did I buy this? I really probably don't need this. 
I must have been hung. You know, you've eaten and you've gone, oh, yeah, I'll have three of those and four of these and I'll put all these bars <laughs> in my ba- in my trolley and everything like that. It just, you want to get home and you want to eat them out of the, the shopping bag as you're going home and you get home and you're like, well, why did I buy these? I'm not hungry. Like, I don't need these. So it's a really bad yes. thing for me to go grocery shopping is when I'm hungry. Yeah, I've been there, mate, for sure. It's, uh, I, that, those supermarkets, there's a psychology behind the way they're designed too. Yeah, you know, don't think that uh, that's all accidental. That you you, you walk in like there's, there's wire, uh, aisles that are wider because they want you to spend more time there. Um, you know, like there's there's flowers and fresh fruit to make you feel healthy as you walk in. Uh, there's no windows, there's no clocks. Like there's everything is intentional the way those supermarkets are designed. There's a psychology behind it. Intense, um, isn't and so it? You, oh, what well, pays the bill? It works that's for right. them, you it's know. Targeted. Like they, uh, it's billion dollar. Yeah. And so the thing is, if you go in there, you know, slightly hungry, that's right. You'll, you'll be starving. And um, usually, so I, I try and fine. encourage everyone where they can to use online shopping. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a good idea because also I find that you'll see at your eye level is all those either big sellers or really high intense fa- flavored stuff in certain aisles. As you're walking along, you'll soon start noticing that there's things that are really color dense are really targeted at getting you to buy a majority or do that. Whereas if you look below or above, you'll actually see some stuff that's probably actually better for you. You know, if you actually pull it out and start reading nutritional uh, nutritional guidelines on what's on, it's um, it's mm. something that you can sort of start picking up on some things that are better for you. Yeah, for sure. They, um, yeah, that, that eye level stuff, either, I think they either pay for that level or it's the high ticket, high market mm. items. So it's, yeah, a, a good um, trick that I try and get everyone to do is just, you know, draw a line in your trolley, imaginary line, fill half of it with veggies, you know, like veggies, fruit and salad. If that's half full, um, you know, then you just go and get a few items, make a list, you know, go in there with the list and try and stick to the list is important, um, or where you can shop online because then you don't have that point of sale temptation that's that's staring you in the face. Yeah. yeah. And once you start to get your recipe list, you can end up getting the same thing that pop up in your shopping trolley all the time. Mm. You won't physically yeah, have to right. try and put them in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It saves time. Exactly. Yeah, it saves time, which is great. Heaps. Um, one thing that I want to circle back to there, Chris, is you talked about maintaining muscle before and how important it is in weight loss. Why is it so important and how do people go about doing that? Um, so maintaining muscle is really important, Katie, um, for a number of reasons, but I, I guess the main standout would be when you're losing weight, it can decrease your metabolic rate. So muscle uh, is a metabolically active tissue, um, much more than body fat. They used to think body fat was, was not metabolically active at all, but it does have some sort of uh, metabolic process behind it. But muscle is very um, metabolically active, so it means your body actually burns a lot of kilojoules. Um, so it's almost like you're doing exercise in your sleep if you've been able to maintain more muscle. Yeah. Um, but it's also really good because, you know, one of the biggest costs um, to society uh, right now is a, is a condition called sarcopenia. Um, and this is a condition that we see in older people. Um, they, they tend to lose the ability to do their normal daily activities. They, you know, can't do the shopping. They can't have a shower. And it's because of muscle wastage. Um, and so if we're doing that at any stage of our life, and it starts from um, the fourth decade of life onwards, you know, so I've just turned 40 last year. So, you know, I've got to be really conscious of my muscle mass now. I've got to work hard to maintain it. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing a rapid uh, weight loss that isn't controlled with the right amount of protein or the right nutrients in there, um, then you are really setting yourself up to strip a ton of muscle. And so that's a, that's a big problem. And that I think, like you're saying there, Chris, is people can get confused and start racing on the numbers that they're seeing on scales. And that's something mm. to probably think about. How, how would you suggest that people actually try and sort of hit those numbers or know what they're actually losing and when they're losing it and where to head? Yeah, well, so, mate, we're a big fan of the uh, InBody 570s because they can look at how much muscle is being maintained. Um, we've also started using hand grip strength um, dynamometers, I think they're called, because um, they're quite good, particularly in the nursing home environment. Just you've got a quantifiable measure to see whether someone's losing strength. Uh, but yeah, for, for my clients, we, we always use the InBody 570s because they give you a lot more than just weight. You know, you can see if someone's losing weight, but you know, we've had clients who their weight hasn't gone down, but they've 
um, water and muscles gone up and body fats dropped significantly and you know that's a great outcome but if they're only using scales it could be quite deflating for them so that's typically what i recommend um but the muscle side of it is mostly exercise though you know you, you guys would have heard um, probably talk about how um, fat loss is you know 80 percent diet muscles the other way around it's pretty much 80 percent exercise we just support it with the right diet um, so really someone's got to be doing the right type of exercise to maintain that muscle um, when they're losing weight as well so do you when you say about exercise and things like that as well you see a lot of people end up and we've talked about in a previous podcast is uh, people get in their nutritional thing and think that they've done a massive amount of exercise and so therefore it justifies them to eat this massive meal so we've talked about the try you can never out train a bad diet obviously there's you know uh, pros and cons for that and people are on either side of the fence with it but where would you suggest and what would you think that people have to have take into consideration that they are exercising yes what is it that we need to think about for our diet or our intake of nutrition for it? Yeah, so if we're talking, um, you know, maintaining muscle and losing weight at the same time and, and the exercise with it, um, then the main thing is that they're getting enough protein and they distribute it over the day. Um, like you say, people, they'll, they'll do a big exercise session and it almost gives them a, a free ticket to eat what they want. And I, I get people not to factor in exercise when they've got a calorie target or a kilojoule target, but they can fuel that exercise if they're hungry. You know, like people think that people think that if they're exercising and they're not eating, they're just going to run out of fuel and collapse. But you know, if their goal is to lose body fat, it's a stored fuel, so they're not going to run out of fuel. They're just going to convert that fat to energy. Now, that doesn't mean I want them to go all day and not eat. You know, if they're really hungry, I can't want them to have a bit of fruit or something around the exercise because I want, you know, a little bit of carbon in the system for them. Um, but it's not critical that they're having a big meal because it's, I call it pissing in the wind, you know, like they're doing this big exercise session and they're just going and drowning it out with food. So it's, it's, it's a waste of time. Um, so really, I get them to still work off a baseline for kilojoules and then we just assess, like if you're, you know, you, you are getting dizzy um, with the exercise. You're pushing it really hard, then we can fuel it a bit more, but um, certainly don't overfuel that. And the main thing that we do is we make sure they're getting enough protein um, for their lean body mass, uh, for their fat-free mass is what we work it out on using the in-body scanners. Uh, and then so we'll then distribute that over the day. So we spread that out. Now, the optimum time, you know, after a good full body workout is is the sooner the better. But to be honest, the evidence is kind of a little bit split there as long as you're getting what they call protein spikes over the day. So it's fairly well distributed over the day. It seems to be just as effective for maintaining muscle. So then when we're looking at me, like you said about your uh, proteins being spread across the day, what sort of general sizes are you talking people to look at as an easy guide? Because some of the people we see are saying that they don't want to walk around with a set of scales, having to weigh things, work out, stuff like that. Uh, it's just mm. some sort of visual, like what do you use as a bit of a guide for people to, to look at what they're looking at on a plate and say, hey, I know I'm getting a, a good quantity of what I need to get me through the day on each meal. Yeah, um, I the, the the scales and and you know kilojoule counters like Easy Diet Diary or, or My Fitness Pal, I, I get people to use for a period of time so that they then can understand what um, a size is. You know what I mean? But you know, if you want a generic measure, you can still stick to the palm size of meat. Um, you know, I, I like two fistfuls of colour, so two fistfuls of your low carb, low starchy veg. Uh, and about a fistful of carb, if you're, if you're doing carb, um, I, I personally do. So about a fistful of carb is a pretty good indication. Um, you could use the plate where it's kind of, you know, good half, if not a little bit more of the low starch, veg or salad. Um, you know, again, about a, a quarter of protein and the other little bit of carb. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of people doing a bit of weighing initially um, because there's so many different foods, you know, like a, a palm size of fish is different to a palm size of steak. You know, whereas if you're a big fish eater, you want to know, oh, wow, that's what um, 150 or 200 grams of fish weighs. And, oh, wow, this is how much protein is in it. You know, so it's, um, you, you do, even though we're, we're it's a, the Western-style diet, people still have fairly different eating patterns. And it's, it's best to try and, you know, learn about the food that you're eating. And the way I sell this to people, because it can be overwhelming. Like, if you go and start to learn about kilojoules and you think you've got to be an expert on all the numbers out there, most people have only got about 10 or 15 meals in their diet. 
you know, 10 or 15 meals at any one time. There's probably two or three breakfasts, you know, half a dozen lunches and dinners. That's all you learn about. You don't need to know about everything and you don't even need a precise knowledge. You've just got to have some sort of idea of where they fit. It's not an exact science. You'll never know exactly how many kilojoules you're eating, but you know, being completely blind to it is no good either. Hmm. No. So they're a, they're a good guide to use, like you're saying, those uh, easy diet diaries and stuff like that as a thing to start off with. We know from looking at them and doing stuff with them, what sort of percentage of error have you seen in them? So some people end up getting on there. It's the same as I've seen a lot of people end up saying about alcohol, putting in, look at this vodka. It says no calorie. You know, like there's no kilojoules. There's nothing in this. I'm all sweet. I can have as many of these drinks as doesn't add. And drinks. And it's, and it's something I don't like. I'm not a, a, a massive soft drink drinker. I'm pretty much soda, water, water lemon in some water, stuff like that, a coffee. That's about, you know, sort of my extent of what I drink a lot of the time. Um, but there is a lot of people that really do struggle with soft drinks and sugary drinks and mm. fizzy drinks and other stuff like that. And then putting them in some of those, in those di- easy diet diaries and, and my fitness pals and stuff like that, there is, is a percentage of error. So sort of where are people sitting and what do they need to look out for in some of that stuff? Yeah, there's a huge percentage, not a huge percentage of error, but there's definitely a percentage of error because, I mean, <clears throat> you pull two apples off the same tree, they're not going to have the same kilojoules mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the, the, the products that come onto the market are changing all the time, and so these applications need to try and keep up to that, which would be a challenge in itself. Um, and so, like, with the alcohol, where you'll get some that might say zero kilojoules, is that it's a a specific brand of alcohol that they've put in. So if they can't find that information, I, I just say use the generic. So if it's a vodka, don't put the type of vodka, just put vodka because it's actually the alcohol content and it will be very close. You know, if you're going through a bottle of vodka a week, oh, that's what I want you to know. I don't need you to know exactly how many kilojoules, but I want you to know that there's, I don't even know what's in it. There's, you know, probably have to be about 7,000 kilojoules or something in a bottle of vodka. I could, I could be out a bit, but I want you to know well, there's 7,000 kilojoules of alcohol close enough that you're going through in the week. And that's that's really what I want them to know. Um, but yeah, you do need to let them know that there's, it's, it's not a perfect science. It's not exact, but um, being completely blind is really problematic because there's so many people that are eating food that they think is really good for them um, that they that didn't realise was high in kilojoules and, and, you know, a few little changes like that can have a pretty big impact on their weight. Yeah. So then if you're looking at, um, obviously, that's general population with tracking and things. One thing we find a lot um, is with shift workers, it's pretty massive when they're on site, um, when they're eating on site, there's not a lot of options for them um, and a lot of the options are not extremely amazing um have you worked with a lot of shift workers or how do you work around that like how how do you manage that and especially they're not going to be real popular if they're bringing scales to the mess not a, not a good <laughs> yeah it, it, it's interesting you say that katie because again this is a real case by case um basis i've got people that who have put a ton of weight on since they've gone and worked in the mines um on shift work but then i've got others who i see now who do better when they're at work because it's a routine you know, they've, they've got that four meals a day and they can control that and it's all routine. Whereas when they come home, there's all the kids' food and the cupboard's full of all these snacks and things and then they can put the weight on. Yeah. Um, so, it, again, it's, it's kind of a case-by-case um, case, uh, approach to helping those people, but more often than not. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, the thing that's out of their control is the uh, what's available in the mess, like in the, the kitchen. And, and some are really good, but some are atrocious. Like they, they can't even get vegetables that aren't just dripping in oil. Um, and so that does make it really hard. But typically typically out of those bain-maries is some sort of protein, salad and veggie that they can take for their lunches. I find quite often um, the guys that do it successfully tend to have their own breakfast. Um, like they've taken out um, some sort of protein powder or fruit, frozen fruit or whatever it might be, and they have that. Um, and then they, they just eat out of the mess, but they, they just choose those leaner options and don't go for the desserts and everything else. But it is really challenging. The, the, what, the shift workers I, I struggle with the most are probably nurses uh, or train drivers because they've got a really cruel roster. Uh, there's no routine to it. Um, they can be working all over the place. And, and what we try and do there is try and break their shift pattern down into 48 hours rather than 24 hours. 
So we work out that they've potentially got, um, you know, how are we going to distribute these six meals rather than three meals in a day, six meals over 48 hours, and that helps them then to to try and work out. Because a lot of them, they, they, they might have a really awkward shift and they, they've all of a sudden added an extra meal into a 48-hour period that wouldn't have been there if they were just on day shift. And so, so giving them that sort of structure that they can just come up with a plan on when to eat and then, you know, when they come back, did it work? Yes or no? You know, we either stick with it or we adjust and try something else. But it's certainly a really challenging environment because sleep shift work is really cruel because it actually um, drives, increases the number of our hunger hormones. Um, and so, you know, like they're, they're out of whack, they can't exercise no routine, but then their body's also producing um, certain hormones that are, that are driving hunger in addition to what would normally be there. So it is a real challenge. Yeah, so they're kind of hit from both sides there with that temptation that's always going to be there. But then they're yeah. also hit with the tiredness of it as well. Then, um, yeah, well, it, it's certainly hard because, like you say, is, is getting the tiredness as, as well as the people seem to hit stimulants then massively. They hit their stimulants mm. and they're looking for coffees and teas and other things that can fit in. How do you go about people looking for, like you say, that 48-hour or 24-hour window of what they do? Especially for me, I know running night shift is certainly a hard thing is you're trying to get through that morning crash when you're actually uh, should be eating at that 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, but your body's actually telling you to go to sleep. Uh, people usually yeah. go for that tea or coffee or some sort of energy drink and hit it then yeah. and not actually eat. So. So where do you sort of put stimulants and what they should look out for and what they, when they should avoid them or, or when we should try and you know, stay, steer clear? Yeah, mate, that's, it's a tough one because you've got to balance it with um, one, like okay, if they're a train driver or something, they need to stay awake. Like it's a safety issue that they're, they're going to need a stimulant. But you know then that that's going to have an impact on their depth and quality of sleep when they do get off shift. Um, because coffee um, can have a half-life of anywhere between 6 and 14 hours, you know, can, can remain in the system for 48 hours. Mm. So, um, like, that, that, even though people can get to sleep, the quality of their sleep when they're having these stimulants is what's affected, which can then still stimulate these hunger hormones. So it's affecting them for days. You know, one poor night's sleep can be affecting them weeks later um, is what the research has shown. So... It is a tough one, but at the same time, we've got to balance, well, you know, is it a safety issue if they're falling asleep then? Um, and I find when they're in a routine, it's not in a routine, when it's, you know, like really awkward shift work like nurses and, and train drivers, um, they're really challenging. The even time rosters where it's seven on, seven off um, is probably a little bit easier. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a little bit easier because they can then get into the routine at the end of that shift. Um, but there's little... Um, like the, what are they called, uh, Barocca drinks. I don't mind them. There's a little bit of caffeine in them, not too much. And there's a bit of um, like bu uh, bubble in it to give them a little bit of a wake up. They seem to work for some people. There's not a lot of calories in them as well, which is quite good. Um, but yeah, it's then other strategies really, like if they can wash their face or whatever it might be. But anything, anything other than having a really rich meal at that time is what I try and advise against mm. because particularly for nurses, like, you know, what, what do you get a nurse if, you, if you're grateful for her? You know, so they're, they're either getting flowers or chocolates. So their lunchroom is typically full of energy-dense snacks. Um, it's a female-dominated environment. Um, so it's always someone's birthday. They always bring in cakes and biscuits. Um, this is clients telling me I'm not being a sexist pig here. Um, but... <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, you know, that's challenging. If that was around me all the time, I would I would find that really challenging, particularly if I'm tired. So it's, it's a tough environment to, to try and lose weight in, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And something I think um, just going on those workplaces as well is you either have heaps of snacks in the workplace, you have certain workplace cultures, um, but then you also see fad diets come into workplaces a lot. So they'll do a two-week kick or a, we're not eating this for this long or like what do you see come around and especially if that you are in an environment where that happens a lot how that how do you then get around that and like are they worth it is it good that they're trying something or are they better off not well i've kind of learned to roll with it katie i um unless they're like really crazy um like the carnival diet is out now um you know, actually, someone come to us recently on the carnival diet, 
And when they told us the diet, it actually wasn't too bad because it wasn't all meat. So they're calling it a carnivore diet. Yeah, but they're having bananas and potatoes. Um, so it's more paleo is what I would have described it as, but they were calling it a carnivore diet. I'm thinking, oh, well, if lots of other people are eating this diet, I'm happy with that. It's actually not too bad because uh, it was just cutting out processed food and this person felt a lot better. Um, but, you know, like there's those drops diets where they're on a 500 calories and they've got to pay a fortune for these drops. Those kind of things, I, I will gently shut that down as quickly as I can for them, just more than anything to save them money. Um, but, yeah, the rest of them, like if it's fasting, it's quite popular and there's some research around fasting um, and they're, they're willing to try it, then I'm happy with that. I just try and shape how they do it. So, you know, the meals you are eating, are we getting enough protein? You know, getting enough fibre, plenty of vegetables in there as well. Um, you know, don't think you can fast and then eat whatever the hell you want um, because that's not going to work either. So, yeah, over time I've just learned to roll with whatever someone's willing to try because ultimately they're coming to you motivated. If they're trying something and they're motivated, motivation is what you're looking for um, and then you're just using that opportunity to try and educate them about why that particular diet might work for them um, and then when they fatigue of it, what the next option might be. Yeah, and you're going through that education process, obviously, while they are, while they have that motivation kick and while they're trying what they wanted to try so that then when they step out of the other side of that, they're good and they're ready to roll straight into the next thing. It's not like they drop off the bandwagon. And motivation gets people started, like you're saying, Chris. Motivation, you can see people gets people talking about or actually investigating in options for things that they can take up. Uh, it gets them started on, on the road, but potentially what happens is motivation ends up dwindling you'll usually find is motivation dwindles for, you know, after a month or something or other, it really finds and they end up getting diet fatigue or stuff like that. We see uh, people coming through at about the two or three week mark sometimes when they're in things and they're like, I need a break. I'm craving things. I just need to get off this for a little bit. Uh, it's something that I suppose you've talked to a lot of people about through stuff like that and helped them through yeah, yeah. Like we we know motivation's fickle. It's it's only there for a short period of time. Um, so I, I've done some training around um, habit formation with a guy, a professor called Dr. B.J. Fogg. So this is a guy who actually trained um, Google and Facebook about human behaviour. So you can he he kind of is responsible for how their platforms developed and the reason we get notifications and all that is all about human behaviour. And so um, his model is basically for any action to occur, for any behaviour to occur, you need to be motivated. You need to have the ability to do that actual behaviour and you need a prompt. But he says motivation is the weakest link. So he, he knows in his model that motivation is only there for a short period of time. The two most important is that you've got the prompts there, so that environmental trigger, and you've got to have the ability to do it. Uh, and so that's where we come in. We, you know, we try and give people the ability to prepare easy food, healthy food while they're motivated um, and create that environment that they're prompted to do it at the same time. But, um, but yeah, motivation is just something that if they've got it, great, we work with it. But um, we try and motivate people, you know, getting results for people can be motivating. But, um, you know, we know that at some stage it's going to slow right down, if not stop. And so you've got to have a plan in place there. Yeah, plan and place to move forwards from. Yeah, hmm. nice. Um, I, I've I just got a few things. Just back to where I've talked, and it's something that I see a lot of as well. Is you'll find that people end up eating so close to sleep. Mm. So you end up with questions of how long should I leave it? When should I start cutting out water? Because I know if you have it's the same as with alcohol and drinking and stuff close to bed, you'll find yourself up during the middle of the night, not getting quality sleep, off to the toilet. People get nighttime cravings. They're up eating the ice cream out of the mm. freezer in the middle of the night. I've never had that happen to me. I Did Yes, I wake snacking. up at three o'clock in the morning, sometimes hungry, um, but I've not ever actually had it where I've been, you know, sleepwalking, suddenly find myself in the front of the fridge eating everything that's in, in there, inhaling it all. How do you try and let people know as far as where should they set their meal times before their bedtimes and their water intakes for thinking about that? Because it's something that you see a lot of is if people eat later to go into bed, obviously your stomach's still trying to digest and still trying to go through everything. So it's actually realistically trying to keep you awake to do all this, to mm. get this done before you can actually go to sleep and not actually letting you go on the rest. Where should you think about sort of setting in those meal times? It's just something that I know I've sort of had people question about is, you know, how late should I be eating meals when before I go to bed? 
Yeah. Um, so the expert in this field is a guy called Dr. Sachin Panda. So he's all about um, eating uh, in long desiccating rhythm. And so we have something called our melatonin onset time, which is, is when our um, body produces melatonin to try and get the body ready for sleep. And so really we shouldn't be eating after that time. Now that can be different for different people. Um, the thing he talks about um, quite passionately is that we should sleep in a routine. So we should be going to the bed uh, to bed at the same time every night because that then is getting your melatonin onset time into a, into a schedule. Um, and so really you shouldn't be eating, um, you know, anything after that time. So from the easiest way to, to answer that for people is I try and get people to eat after the sun goes down um, because what they've shown is that, um, you know, if, if like we, we've got uh, clocks in all the cells in our body that basically tell our brain what time it is and they're either driven by light, okay, through the eyes that tells um, our body what time of day it is, but there's also um, informed by activity and digestion. So if we're eating late at night, we're telling our body that, hey, it's, you know, the, the day's still going, we're not shutting down yet. But our brain, because the darkness is then saying, hey, no, it's, it's, um, it's time to get ready for bed. And so it, it develops what they call circadian misalignment. And they've found that this actually increases oxidation and inflammation in the body. Um, so there's some really, you know, knock-on consequences from this lifestyle, which, again, it's fairly new to the human body. You know, we've only been doing this for 50 years. Like, 24-hour mm. TV hasn't been around that long. Um, I, I still remember the ABC sign that would come up when it would shut off. Um, Katie may not remember the... No, yeah. I remember that. I was just very small. Yeah. Yeah, I turn off until the next day. I know what you mean. Yeah, so so now we're, we're basically eating a lot later than what we ever have. Um, and so our bodies just aren't used to it and, and there's health consequences for it. So, yeah, I just get people as best they can, not always possible, but as best they can, eat before the sun goes down, um, drink, uh, finish drinking or, you know, around the same time because you don't want to be up peeing all night. I, I try and get people to achieve most of their fluid intake before lunch, you know, because it just ticks it off for you and then just keep your, your uh, lips wet uh, in the afternoon and, and hydrated. Um, and, yeah, certainly try not to eat late at night. There's, there's an actual eating disorder called night eating disorder where people are getting up um, eating, you know, ice cream, like you say, been out of the freezer, um, you know, sleepwalking and waking up there. And if that's a problem that's happening all the time, then there's actually a care plan now. You can go into your doctor and access 20 visits to a dietitian and 40 to a psychologist to try and help you with that. Wow, that's quite yeah, impressive. It is. And it's, it's good something to be in place mm. because I have heard of it a lot with people saying yeah. that that is something that they struggle with. And I think that leads into a bit of sleep apnea and other things going on, you know, with people struggling with sleep and, you know, how they're breathing and things like that, which we which we have talked about. But I just wanted to double back quickly what you had said about is hydration. It's a big thing we've talked about previously on another mm -hmm. podcast. I know you delve into it a lot as well, is about hydration. How important can people understand how poor hydration or dehydration affects the whole way it works? Oh, we're mostly water, mate, if you're... If you, um you know, not hydrated. Uh, probably the, the simplest way to explain it for people is if you are mildly dehydrated, um, your blood gets thick, okay? So you imagine your heart trying to pump syrup around your body and the amount of pressure that puts on your heart is gluggy um, liquid that it has to pump around. So keeping hydrated keeps that fluid um, really nice and, um, uh, what's the word? Opposite Fluidity. of viscous. Fluidity. <laughs> Yeah, uh, fluidity, yeah. Um, so it keeps it nice and, and fluid and, and so then it's easier for the heart to pump that yeah, blood around viscosity. the body. Now that viscosity then means of it. Viscosity. Viscosity. Um, so, it, you know, it helps to deliver the nutrients and the mm. oxygen to all the parts of the body, um, you know, all the immune cells that travel in the blood. So keeping hydrated is really at the core of that. Um, you know, it helps for eating as well, you know, like a lot of the time um, people are hungry, whereas a good drink of water can really help with that. Um, again, because of those mechanoreceptors, it registers that weight that goes into the stomach. Um, and the brain as well, actually. If you're, if you're um, mildly dehydrated for an extended period of time and you do this all the time, it increases your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's, wow. which is yeah. now, I think, That's if scary. it's not the top chronic disease, it's very close to it. 
So what would you suggest is because I'm like, it's, it's very same as you had said before about the food and, and everything, how things set up. It's not a one size fits all with how much water you need, though, mm. but there is definitely a basis for how much you should be targeting throughout that 12 or 16 hour period that you're awake. Like uh, there's some amount out of that, that we should be targeting. So generally what should we be looking at as far as a number to hit? Yeah, look, it's the the, the dietitian uh, approach is thirty five to forty five mil per kilo of body weight or adjusted body weight. Now, not too many people are going to get out a calculator and work that out. Just make sure your pee's clear. You know, clear or pale yellow. That's your best indicator. Like, just if if your pee is a dark orange all the time, you're not drinking enough water. Um, now, some people that take multivitamins can have a strong colour because of B2 that's getting excreted in the um, in the urine. But you know, outside of that, your, your urine should be a pale yellow, clear colour, and so that's the easiest indicator. Yep. And then on those multivitamins, I did hear a report a while ago that they reckoned if they actually total, like they look at in the sewage system, they reckon that we actually got the most expensive urine or sewage system in the Western world is because people spending so much money on multivitamins. Now, multivitamins, how can we get these out of general foods? Without people having to doing take it without a having to take a multivitamin. Yeah, look, it's um I, I'm a bit torn on this one, right? Because because of I'm a bit of a realist, I like to think I am anyway. Um you, you think of, again, our grandparents who could pull it out of the ground and eat it. So unless you've got your own home garden, you're relying on the nutrient to remain in the food once it's grown a long way away from where it was purchased. Mm-hmm. It's pulled out of the ground, processed, potentially chopped up. As soon as it's exposed to oxygen, you start to lose a lot of the nutrients. Um, it's shipped up. It sits on the shelf at the shop. Uh, you take it home, you put it in your fridge. And so there's degradation, this whole process. Spinach will lose 90% of its vitamin C in the first 24 hours. So um, we do have nutrient deficiencies. And I don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that everyone go and take a multivitamin because I agree that it's an expensive urine. Um, but I, I don't mind people taking them if they've got a busy life and it's it's covering some bases. Yes, 90% of it's probably going to go down the toilet. Um, but to be honest, no one has the perfect diet where all their nutrients are covered. Mm. Um, and if they can afford it and they're willing to take a multivitamin, I'm not against it. Um, but, you know, my first choice for everyone would be grow your own bread, veggies, you know, eat from scratch, eat natural food. But the reality is very few people can or will do that. And so sometimes a multivitamin is, is not bad. Now, are they good? Are, are they, you know, what's advertised even in there? I've got no idea. You know, I, I can't guarantee anyone. I, I'm not too sure. Um, but like I said, if your budget allows it and that's what you want to do, then I, I, I don't mind that either. I suppose in some cases you would say it's a bit of a, like there's total benefits for it and things I can see with people, like you say, and then micronutrients and, and not eating rainbows as far as being able to get it. And like you said, we see so much nowadays and Katie would talk to it about before as being either, um, you know, like overfed and undernourished as far as what we're doing and what we're eating uh, in, in getting that good um, cross section of stuff. Uh, but it's sometimes a placebo effect of people feeling that they're actually doing something healthy. It's sometimes also, which it can be tangented into, um, what people actually buying as healthy food in the grocery store for their children. It's going and having an, and not necessarily just relying on what you've been told with those four and five star ratings on some things. Maybe have a look mm-hmm. at those things, go through those, um, those nutrient tables, make sure it's ticking. I think I read something as well, Chris, and says about in those um, ready-made meals, if you're not seeing a protein, a carb and a fat as the first things on their nutrient table and seeing a massive amount of list of all these preservatives that they've put in there then it's probably not the highest level of of choice for that meal mate i'd agree and there's also a really really interesting study that come out um, by a guy called um, dr kevin hall who looked at ultra processed food and um versus uh, your more natural food and that the they found that the People that were eating your, your processed food, even when the calories were controlled, were gaining more weight. Mm. 
Um, and because the body has to work hard to break down the natural food. So, you know, we have to digest, break down the fibers and everything else. And so in the, in, when something's processed, a lot of the work has been taken out of that for us. And our, our, um, the, what they call the thermic effect of food or the digestion of food, it can use, you know, up to around 10% of the energy that our body burns. And when you consider that exercise for some people can be 10%, you know, if they're not that active or movement, not exercise, um, then, you know, the digestion, our digestive system actually uses up quite a bit of energy. So if you're eating a diet that's highly processed, like those frozen meals all the time, um, then you're, you're taking some of the work away from your body, which means that you're not burning as many calories at the same time. The nutrition part of it, you know, again, like the, there's, Every, as soon as something's exposed to oxygen, it's going to degrade. You're going to lose a lot of the nutrition in it. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's a problem because, we, you know, we do see deficiencies. We, we, we even see um, some scurvy, you know, vitamin C. should never see scurvy. We 40, 45 milligrams of vitamin C is all we need um, to prevent scurvy. Uh, that's in, a, in about three strawberries you can get that. But we're seeing scurvy, you know, so that's scary. huge. Yeah, that's a lot. And for something that, you know, now a majority of people in our environment have got supply of those food. You know that those foods are available. In the Western world, they're all there. The Western, yeah, that's exactly right. Totally. But it's like you say, I, I, you know, overfed and undernourished, it's, it's huge. Like you can be obese and, and malnourished because the type of food that made you obese was nutrient poor. Yeah. And we see that all the time. Yeah, yeah nice. it's quite common. Yeah, it's massive. Beautiful. I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. Excellent. Massive thing. So, um, Chris, how can our viewers um, catch up with you, see you? Are you active on um, social media with what you're doing as far as seeking nutrition, putting information out there, trying to help educate people? Where can they sort of get in contact or try and catch up with you if they did have any issues or wanted to further in some of the, the dietitian stuff? Yeah, mate, um, Seeking Nutrition is our sort of physical practice. So you can find us on um, Facebook at Seeking Nutrition um, or our website at Seeking Nutrition. But um, we, we also, our, our online program is called SCOOD, which is S-C-O-O-D, um, which is the science of food. But that was not the original reason for the name, but I don't have time to go through all that right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but if you go SCOOD.Nutrition is on Instagram. Um, and if you even search Scoot on Facebook, I think at this stage, some stage this year, we'll probably change that to our, our Seeking Nutrition Facebook page to Scoot as well because we, we run, you know, the health challenges a few times a year under the Scoot banner now. Um, and, yeah, we've got all of our content on Facebook and Instagram pretty much. And I know you've got a bit of a podcast going yourself as well. Uh, you have links for doing stuff like that <laughs> and talking about it. You're better at promoting me than I am, Ben. Um, I'm trying, yes. trying to help you out there. Just get everyone you out are, there you're pushing check me it, chase you. it out. <laughs> chase it out, mate. Um, mate, I've got a, a podcast called Punching Above Your Weight. Um, so this is a podcast that is from the perspective of people that have really battled with obesity for the majority of their life. Um, and it's an opportunity for me as a health professional and other health professionals listening or other people listening to really gain an insight into you know, what, what people have been through, you know, like we, we get 20 minutes with them sitting at the desk, um, you know, trying to help them. And, and it's easy just to think, eat less, move more. But, you know, there's a huge story in some of the podcasts that, that we've done. It's just harrowing, you know, stories of, of um, rape and abuse. And, you know, like we don't get all of that information out of a client's head when they're sitting on the other side of us. So it's, it's about understanding that. And so that one's called Punching Above Your Weight. And you can find that on um on most of the podcasting, Apple and uh, Spotify and, yeah, and no, SoundCloud, it's, it's, I think. It's really good. I've, I've listened to a few of them and I really enjoyed uh, as far as being able to, for you to talk to some people that have gone through some of that stuff themselves and helps you understand that and potentially tries to get a bit of um, uh, people being a bit more happy with where they are in their life and also understand that sometimes you may see someone externally and not actually understand that there's a lot of stuff going on. Five minutes you spend with someone, potentially there's hours or 15 or 20 minutes behind them of, of issues that they've struggled to come to where they are now and got ahead. So it's totally helped me with understanding what's on those because I've not been a person that struggled with weight as far as that throughout my life. So you can understand how it can certainly come towards that. So it's, it's something that's a good listen to try and listen to some people, other people's stories and understanding. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, you know, a few of the people that I've 
I've interviewed have been clients of mine, and I, I'm like, I've seen you ten times. I don't know any of this stuff. You know, like, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Because yeah, when you're in a clinical setting, there's not the opportunity for that, and it's not the place for them to bring that up because also they may not see it as being interrelated. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, and I mean, it's it's pretty raw, some of it too. You know, people don't necessarily want to bring it out. I mean, I, I do have someone cry in our office probably once a week or you know every couple of days because, you know, weight loss is quite emotive and it brings up some um, emotions that, you know, can upset people. But, yeah, like it's it, our health system doesn't really allow the time to, to really get to know these people to, you know, help them as best we can. So, you know, that's the, that's the idea of the podcast and it's um, it's been a great process for me, uh, if nothing else, yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, thank you very much for your time. So uh, hopefully there's some actionable items both for yourself and for anyone else that's listening there that you can hand over to people to let them know um, or send them to us. Yeah. So by all means, send us any questions uh, in yeah. uh, DM us on uh-huh. DM us at 360view.co on Instagram or Facebook um, and that way we can get in touch with Chris and we can get him to elaborate any further if need be um, and yeah, we can go from there. Thanks guys. Thank you viewers for tuning in to another episode of 360 View. You can follow us on Instagram at 360view.co to stay up to date with everything we're doing and tag us in your podcast listening. If you found value in today's episode, leave us a like, a review and a five-star rating. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this episode, give it a share. And if you have any questions, shoot us a DM on Instagram and we'll answer them on the show. Thanks again viewers and we'll chat to you in the next one.